What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Hello and welcome to the Intelligence from The Economist. In Miami, Florida, I'm John Fassman. We have kind of an unusual show for you today. Now, don't worry, it's still a weekday, so you're still going to get your fresh perspectives on events shaping your world. But on the newsstands now is The Economist's first ever summer double issue, featuring 62 pages of terrific work from our sister publication, 1843, which tells stories of our extraordinary world. And that's what we're sharing with you today. If you don't have kids or spend much time in Las Vegas, it's probably been a while since you last saw a magician in person. But illusionists are among the most successful viral videographers. And if you've ever spent a winter in Northern Europe, you've probably pined for the sun. If you've spent a summer in South Florida, you've probably hidden from it. Our obituaries editor reflects on humanity's ambivalent attitude toward that orb in the sky. But first. Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, is a difficult man to understand. MBS, as he's known, is a reformer. He's a liberalizing force in a deeply conservative world. It's the start of a new era here in Saudi Arabia today. Women actually driving themselves to work for the first time after a decade. He's also vengeful. Now, the Washington Post says one of its contributors, a prominent Saudi journalist and vocal critic of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, is missing. The newspaper says Jamal Khashoggi was last seen entering the Saudi consulate in Istanbul to pick up paperwork. Mohammed bin Salman is the most important figure in one of the world's most strategically important countries. Nick Pelham is The Economist's Middle East correspondent. Saudi Arabia is the world's biggest oil exporter. It's also the kingdom where the word of one man counts for so much. And as a result, the fate of the country and those that rely on it utterly depends on his character, on this one individual. And I've wanted to investigate and interrogate that character. And I think there are things that we can learn from taking a close look at him and about what his career to date and his path to date can tell us about what to expect in the future. Nick, where do you start with something like that? How do you build that picture of his character? A really good place to start to get a sense of the man is the time me and a few of my colleagues at The Economist spent with the man himself when we went to see him in his rest house on the outskirts of the capital, Riyadh. Before he rose to prominence, like a lot of people, he wasn't exactly on my radar. He was just one of the many princes of the Saudi royal family. But one of my contacts had started to work for him and got in touch with me and basically said, hey, this guy's really interested in shaking things up. You should keep an eye on him. And so we did, and we set up a meeting with him in January 2016. And there we were, in the inner chamber of his compound on the outskirts of Riyadh. And I remember actually being 
really impressed. I found him a really beguiling figure. He talked about modernization, he talked about the economy, and he did so with such enthusiasm, with such vision, and with such striking command of the details that I remember sort of coming away feeling pretty convinced he was affable, he was self-assured, he was smiling. He was so comfortable talking that he was going late into the night. We were flagging by 2 a.m. and he seemed to have all the figure, as you would expect, of a young man in his early 30s. And he wasn't even crown prince at that time. And he was talking about my country and my borders. And it possibly speaks to his vision that it now really is his country. And a lot of the reforms he talked about are happening. Let's start there. Let's talk about MBS, the reformer. How have things changed in Saudi Arabia? It's almost difficult to believe how quickly and fundamentally the essence of public life in Saudi Arabia has really changed. So I think I first went there in the mid-1990s. And I remember sort of feeling continually this juxtaposition, this dichotomy between what took place in public space and what was taking place behind closed doors. Officials did offer me whiskey when I went to their home. There was actually quite a lot behind closed doors that you could do. But public space was firmly in the control of religious police. And people were scared of them. They deeply resented them. But it set the tone. It was a really bland, nondescript, predictable, colorless place. And now you see people experimenting with art, with music. You know, all these were taboos, and the taboos have just fallen away one by one. And I actually did something I thought I never would do in Saudi Arabia. I went to a rave at the opening of a new hotel. There was booze being served at an open bar. Women were dancing. There were couples kissing. And beyond that, the kingdom has now become a routine place for global acts to go on tour. You have high-profile sporting events. You've got boxing matches, Formula One. And it's not just entertainment. The most visible change is the place of women in public life. They can now drive. They don't need to have a guardian to escort them. And the list just goes on and on. And we're talking about changes to society. Many people thought would take generations to materialize. And you can't quite grasp that it's just happened in a few years. And this isn't the country that I used to know. Do you think there's something about Mohammed bin Salman, about his character that pushed him to fundamentally change social life in Saudi Arabia? John, there's no escaping that prior to MBS, life in Saudi Arabia was pretty oppressive, especially if you're a woman. And to some extent, it was just simply necessary to do it. But Mohammed bin Salman did seem to relish breaking religious taboos. In 2017, he lifted a ban on Tinder. He also introduced a new card game competition, something that was previously banned. Not only that, but he made it so that the first deck of cards was dealt by one of the imams of the great mosque of Mecca. Then there's also much greater access now to alcohol and drugs, captagon, cocaine in Riyadh. In fact, many of the people I spoke to when I was profiling MBS told me that they believe that MBS frequently uses drugs himself. And it has to be said that he denies this categorically. We put these and many of the allegations in the piece to MBS's representatives. And through the Saudi embassy in London, they issued a broad denial saying, the allegations are denied and are completely without foundation. In any case, this loosening of the social mores reflects both him and many of his youthful peers. But just because before MBS there was a repressive element to society, it doesn't mean that that's gone. It's still there, but just repressive in a different way. How so? It's repressive in the sense that he's consolidated power so much that people are scared to cross him. And to understand why that's the case, you need to understand the story of how he came to power. When he was a kid, 
He was isolated, an outsider, and just one of 15,000 royals and not really in the top rank at that. But the choice to elevate him made sense. He was, in many ways, like his father. He was a hard worker. He was ambitious. And he reveled in being the disciplinarian, the one who would control others. And that was really his father's task. His father had been this disciplinarian who was there to keep the family in check. And his son relished that same chance to keep his olders and betters and perhaps a kind of dismissed him or treated him with disdain as a child. He really enjoyed that sense of comeuppance in which he was the one who could now throw his weight around. And MBS also did anything he could to amass control. And he was known to be a pretty frightening character. Politically, sources say that he coerced people who were his obstacles in the royal family into abdication. And that became his signature move. Again, I've spoken to a lot of people who have met him over the years and who know people who are very close to him who say that he's capable of these terrible tempers. Two former palace insiders say that during an argument with his mother, he once sprayed her ceiling with bullets. MPS, of course, presents his family life as normal and happy. And I did speak to a diplomat who spoke of MBS's kindness to his wife. But then I've spoken to others who came from within the royal circle who say that on at least one occasion, his wife, Princess Sarah bint Mashur, was so badly beaten by her husband that she had to seek medical treatment. And again, we put this and other allegations to MBS's representatives who described them, and I'm reading this, as plain fabrication. And they went on to say that the kingdom is unfortunately used to false allegations made against its leadership, usually based on politically or other motivated malicious sources, particularly discredited individuals who have a long record of fabrications and baseless claims. So there you see a blanket denial of pretty much everything that we've written about MBS in the piece. So the repression that you've discussed comes from the way he built power and now keeps hold of it? Yes, I think that's right. One of the biggest examples of this happened in 2017. It was in the autumn after the summer break. MBS hosted what he called a Davos in the Desert event at the Ritz-Carlton. And there you had all the luminaries of the business world sort of gather and convene in, in Riyadh at his invitation. And it was at this flagship event that many of the senior princes and businessmen who by this stage were a little bit nervous about what to expect were also invited back. And they felt sure that kind of if you've got this global gathering, that was going to give them some safety and a bit of protection. But as soon as the foreigners had left, MBS pounced and hundreds of princes and businessmen were swept up. They were held as detainees in the Ritz-Carlton for weeks on end. Some were said to be hooded, deprived of sleep, beaten until they agreed to transfer money and hand over an inventory of their assets and bank deals. And according to MBS's officials, this was a huge success. The shakedown, they said, raised about $100 billion. It capped rampant corruption. Many ordinary Saudis who'd long resented the power and the inequality that these princes and businessmen represented. But what it did was to basically put the royal and business class in their place. It signified as clearly as possible that MBS was the only address that mattered and that from now on, his word and his word alone was going to count. And then, of course, there was the ultimate message sent to those who were critical of him. Police in Turkey are investigating the disappearance of a prominent Saudi journalist. Jamal Khashoggi's fiancé says he was visiting the Saudi consulate in Istanbul but never came out. The Post says it doesn't know if Khashoggi's being detained, questioned or when he'll be released. The site outside the Saudi Arabian consulate in Istanbul resembles a crime scene more than it does a diplomatic mission. 
Turkey says it believes Mr. Khashoggi was killed in the consulate in a premeditated murder involving a Saudi hit squad who removed his body. The Saudis called that baseless, touring a camera crew around the consulate, opening cupboards in a bizarre attempt to show the journalist is not inside. To the surprise of no one, the Saudis now confirm he died after entering the Saudi consulate in Istanbul October 2nd in what is described as a fist fight with more than one dozen Saudi officials. The prosecutor in Istanbul now says he was strangled immediately after he entered the Saudi consulate four weeks ago. His body was then dismembered and, in the words of the prosecutor, destroyed in line with plans made in advance. Khashoggi was in fact murdered and dismembered, and I believe in the order of the Crown Prince. And I would make it very clear, we were not going to in fact sell more weapons to them. We were going to in fact make them pay the price and make them in fact the pariah that they are. So that kind of brings us up to the present. The killing of Jamal Khashoggi was such a huge moment for MBS and the way he was perceived. Joe Biden said he wanted to make Saudi Arabia a pariah. Is that still the case? Is that pariah status still intact? It's been deeply eroded. The Davos and the Desert events are back. He's powered up the Sovereign Wealth Fund and been making huge investments around the world. And it looked as if relations with America were in a deep freeze. But then the war in Ukraine changed all that. And the US, like many other Western nations, realized that they couldn't survive without Saudi oil. So in recent months, you've seen one Western leader after another troop to Riyadh. And the most recent of those was Joe Biden, who you could almost sort of feel him holding his nose as he did it. But he agreed to meet MBS in Jeddah last month. But he was meeting on MBS's terms, on MBS's turf. And it now seems as if the only thing that Saudis may have learned from the killing of Khashoggi is no matter what sin you commit, if you can ride out the protestation, buy time, eventually the financiers, the celebrities, and the Western leaders will come back to you. It seems as though MBS is a threat to many of those within his kingdom. But does he pose any threat, do you think, to the rest of the world? And if so, what should the world be doing about it? You know, throughout the time that I was researching this piece, I heard kind of one analogy made again and again about MBS, and that was to Saddam Hussein. There is something about the nature of his rule, about the degree to which he's cowered his own population, about the degree to which you know nobody has not just the gumption, but the ability to say no. This is a person who's feeling his way to changing not just his own kingdom, but the region as a whole. And I think that is a cause of concern when Saudi Arabia is so critical to global energy supplies. You've seen him gamble, and you've seen him actually take on the world's most powerful man. And as many Saudis see it, and I think as many in the region see it, sort of humiliate him. He is the model strongman of the Middle East. And this is a despot who's young, who by all accounts is going to succeed as king when his elderly father dies at some point in the probably not too distant future and could be there for another half century. So yes, I think the world is going to have to grapple with MBS for a long time to come. All right, Nick, this was fascinating. And your story on MBS, which is in our summer double issue, was terrific. I can't recommend it highly enough. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, John. It was a pleasure to be here. Twist it in there. Last spring, I was hanging out with content creators. Ashley Mears is a sociologist who writes for 1843. 
sitting next to the toilet with a young woman who's squirting chocolate syrup and whipped cream into the bowl. Then she fills the tank with milk. She flushes, and it comes up as a toilet milkshake. If you want it extra creamy, just because there's a little bit of water mixed in there, you'll add some whipped cream. She's not actually drinking it. She's just pretending. And it looks that way because there's a straw in it. This is Anna Rothfuss. She's a 35-year-old content creator. She's based in Vegas. She used to be a singer. The guy who's behind the camera, he's like ooing and aahing. And at one point he says, Oh my goodness, that is so extra. That's an acclaimed magician. His name is Justin Flom. She is, I should specify, not a fetishist. And she's not a desperate attention seeker. She's actually one of the most successful viral content creators that's in this game. She makes six figures a month. I'm a cultural sociologist. I'm a sociology professor at Boston University. And my methodology is ethnography, which means that I try to get as close as possible to people in their everyday worlds in order to understand the world from their perspective. And in this case, I wanted to understand how somebody goes viral, what are the rewards and what are the costs, and that brought me here next to the toilet milkshake. You know, I've hung out in some pretty weird situations, but this one is extra, for sure. Anna Rothfuss and Justin Flom, they're some of about 180 video makers. They're called creators in the you know, creator economy. And they make these short videos that are timed to last the precise number of seconds that Facebook's in-stream ads will reward to monetize. So these clips are designed to look like ordinary user-generated content, right? The regular kind of stuff that you see in your newsfeed, like what's going on with your friends and family. But they're actually all scripted. I can't believe she brought another man in on her birthday. On her birthday. They tend to fall into different genres that are popular at any given time. So like CCTV footage of dangerous situations, DIY, crafting, cooking hacks, like weird cooking hacks. Holy cow. That's just right on the countertop. Holy this smokes. is the easiest way is it? to make spaghetti for a crowd. Adultery, proposals, breakups, the kind of stuff that might look a little bit crazier than what you're used to seeing, but is meant to look like your typical newsfeed content. My name is Rick Lax. I make weird, funny videos that people watch on the internet. Rick trains people how to make these videos, and he takes a slice of the ad revenue that they earn from Facebook. There's a certain type of video that I am known for. Hello, my friends. My name is Rick Lax, and I am about to read your mind. Now, I did not set out to make videos like this. I started out, like a lot of magicians at the time, doing street magic, like David Blaine. But all the comments that people would give me, they would just say, well, that's fake. That's an actor. If I went up on the street and I read someone's mind, they would say, oh, that person's in on it. But then there was this one type of magic, which was this interactive mind reading piece where people could not say it was a uh, fake because there was no actors. I was performing it for them and there were no visual moments. It, it was a, a demonstration of mind reading. 
if I turn this card over and somehow the number on this card matches your number, the number you're thinking of right now, you have got to share this video. For a lot of people, this was the first magic tricks that they've ever had performed for them. And then when I realized why this genre was so powerful to do online, yeah, I made that my thing. In a month, I blew through the whole catalog of interactive magic tricks. And then for the next one to two years, I would just create more tricks like that every single day. Rick Lax is, I would say, the most ambitious content creator of the ones that I've met. He's searching for recognition. I think he liked the idea of a university professor taking an interest in writing about his world. When I met Rick, I came out to his place in Las Vegas. He has now two mansions. One of them has been converted into a collab house or, you know, a house for collaboration. He comes from a family of highly educated people. His dad was a successful lawyer. So he really has this kind of alpha exterior. But underneath, there's a misfit of sorts. I have been performing magic since I was about five years old. Some of my first memories are going over to my grandparents' house, and they had the best collection of David Copperfield VHS tapes in the world. And we would watch them together, and my grandmother, she would say, Oi, Ricky, how does he do it? She, she was in pain, like out of amazement. So from a very early age, I saw the powerful effect that magic could have on people, and I've stuck with it my whole life. He started doing, at first, putting up magic tricks, posting them on his Facebook page. But these videos started to get, like, hundreds of millions of views. By 2017, his Facebook page was really taking off. Two things happened that enabled him to become the kingpin of viral content. First is Facebook's monetization for video content kicks in in 2018 with the Facebook Watch feature. And he starts making quite a lot of money. He's kind of slowly partnering with some people, including his fiance, Ellie Brown. But then really what speeds up his company is 2020, the pandemic hits. It actually throws up this surprising opportunity because many of his friends in Vegas and elsewhere who were in the entertainment industry, like a lot of magicians and other performing artists, they're all out of work. And so he has this huge supply of talent of people who need to work that he can train. Their videos aren't magic tricks per se. Let's go. So putting the oil in the body and now you get in the balloon. Magic tricks aren't their mainstay necessarily, but the art of magic kind of hovers over so much of what they do. Magicians know how to place objects at exactly the right angle in order to make you see something that's not there. They're incredibly imaginative and creative. And above all, they're just wizards in misdirecting attention. Like the crux of a magic trick is making you see one thing while really something else is going on. And I think that's the perfect metaphor for a viral video. All right, we are... It's going to take about 30 seconds to get... We are recording. Okay. 
Last August, I went to Vegas to spend some time filming these bangers with uh, Ellie Brown. That's Rick Lax's fiance. They call a viral hit a banger, anything over 10 million views. I think their biggest banger is 800 million. Oh my God. Oh my God, this is a huge chunk. Where did it come from? You know, they often film in each other's homes because it gives the video this feel of some kind of authentic amateur reality. Of course, in reality, there are professional lighting rigs and little bits of equipment that are just outside the frame. Lax's creators do keep an eye out for these third-party fact-checkers that Facebook employs and they will remove, among other things, videos that are masquerading as authentic. They'll flag it as fake news. The video, I had, I think, a grapefruit, and I pulled an orange out of the grapefruit, and then I pulled an egg out of the orange. This video was demonetized and fact-checked, and my page was flagged for sharing misinformation. To get around this, most viral creators will put disclaimers at the top of their page saying that these are satires or parodies and that the content is scripted drama. I've come to understand that everything on the internet is inauthentic. The thing that's interesting is to draw lines between what's misinformation, what's fake news, what's inauthentic, and what's satire. And that's not an easy thing to do. Many of the most important fact-checkers of all time have been magicians. It was Houdini who really stood up to these spiritualists who are profiting off the misfortunes and emotional distress of others. James Randi, Penn & Teller have carried this tradition forward. I think that's because as a magician, you see how others can be tricked. So when people do that stuff to get something out of someone, rather than giving them entertainment, I think that's a big problem. Over the course of six hours, we cranked out five videos, and the one that did best was what's called a cheater drama. Yeah, because I work here, and I wait tables here, and your husband brings his girlfriend here. The suspense of waiting for the cuckolded spouse to find out is what keeps that viewer kind of watching, right? And the whole goal is to keep a viewer watching for the longest time possible, especially through an ad. We try to make videos that will appeal to everyone. No one knows who we are. I've been making Facebook videos now for seven or eight years, but I don't have any delusions that people know who I am. So in every video we do, we want the stakes to be really high. This type of video works well because the stakes are so high. We're potentially about to see a relationship break up if this one person is caught. At some point, creators might also treat the viewer to this kind of funny twist, something surreal that they call a trigger. So for instance, in a cooking video, a content creator might put tampons in the freezer, right? And you're like watching it like, wait, did I just see tampons in that woman's freezer? Triggering is great because it provokes comments. And the more comments that happen because Facebook has engagement-based ranking in their algorithms, it means that the more engagement, the more their algorithms are gonna recommend it to more people. 
you know, he's been really integral in changing the careers and getting work for so many magicians. But still, there's this one community of critics that have so much power to wound him. And those are fellow magicians. Within the magic community, he is a really polarizing figure. Right, so this was the classic thing he used to do. He would sit in a cafe, he would uh, do these written things where he wasn't speaking because he understands that face. Those kinds of critiques, the magicians, they really sting. Rick Lax is certainly enjoying his success. He has a fabulous mansion. From his office, it looks over his pool and his terrace, and then far down below, you can see the Las Vegas Strip, the epicenter of traditional entertainment and magic shows. They're just like tiny twinkling lights from his balcony, and he's kind of perched up high looking down on them. But still, it pains him that they don't see what he's done. Lax, he's changed the lives of his friends forever, and he's watched by billions of people. But nobody sees him. Hello, my friends. My name is Rick Lax, and I am about to read your mind. We begin with your age. Go ahead, think of your age right now. Shouldn't take too long. Whatever number you're thinking about. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As I'm talking, the sun is lying on the gardens outside like great shining panes. Anne Rowe is a senior editor at The Economist. The sea is sparkling, and there's a white sail, just one white sail of a boat out on there, reflecting the sun like a diamond. It's a wonderful morning, and as usual, I simply can't resist going outside and reveling in the sunshine. However, it's a strange frame of mind I go out in. The Latin poet Catullus wrote, Odi et amo, I hate and I love. And I feel like that about the sun these days. I adore it, but I go out as if I'm going to face an enemy. When I was young, the sun didn't seem like that at all. It was only wonderful, beneficent. It was a happy thing. It beamed at you out of cereal packets. It was a friend and a companion, always a jolly male one somehow. The moon was insipid and feminine and watery, but the sun was magnificent and majestic. I treated it rather like a companion, and I've always liked the prayer of St. Francis where he addresses the sun as Lord Brother. On the one hand, it's majestic, magnificent, and on the other, it now seems rather like a brother who can brawl with you and fight you and actually land you a punch when you're not expecting it. For centuries, of course, all the civilizations of the world, more or less, have made the sun a god. 
it's so obvious to pray to this blazing orb in the sky. The Greeks had Apollo, who was the god of order and meter and music. The Egyptians had Ra, the great creator god. Hindus had Brahman. Everyone associates the sun with a god of some sort. But there again, you will find that these gods have two aspects. There's the creator and king of the universe. And on the other hand, there's a rather dangerous and unpredictable star. So the Greeks, as well as having Apollo, also had Helios, who was really the god of the disk of the sun. And he was driving his chariot round the heavens and in the course of driving it, could sometimes get too close to the earth and scorch it up and dry up the ponds. We have sun gods who are also gods of plague and gods of scorching the earth. The god Sekhmet in Egypt was a god of the unbearable sun of the summer. It is understandable that the sun is a rather fearsome thing in some ways. The wonderful line from Shakespeare's symbol in fear no more the heat of the sun. But people do fear it and did fear it as much as they worshipped it. The only time when people seem to have taken a different approach to the sun and it's interesting was during the time of Dunn and Marvel and the poets who saw the sun in a rather more human way. Dunn famously called the sun a busy old fool for shining in through the window on him and his mistress in bed. The sun was still glorious and joyful, but man had the measure of it now, and he could order it about. And Handel's beautiful aria, eternal source of light divine, commands the sun, like a servant, to shine with double ray on Queen Mary's birthday. However, I think this easy relationship with the sun hasn't lasted very long. I find my own grandparents were always very chary of the sun. It was for interesting reasons that they didn't want their skin to look as if it had got tanned and brown like a labourer in the fields. It was perhaps rather class prejudice that they had, that they wouldn't go out in the sun without the men wearing their bowler hats and the women wearing huge sun hats and with parasols and dresses buttoned to the neck. They learned to be wary of the sun and I think gradually we are learning that more and more that it is as well as a wondrous thing that we love to be out in, a dangerous, dangerous companion. We have all the wildfires, we have the general drying up of the planet and the dreadful dangers of climate change. All the same, I find that I can't shake my devotion to the sun. It does seem to be the natural point of my meditations. I am very fond of the Gayatri Mantra from the Rig Veda, which is the holiest of the Hindu mantras, 
which says, O divine creator son, effulgent in radiance and glory, turn my understanding towards you. And I think every morning of those words as I stand at my window. So the sun has infiltrated and disturbed me and yet I still raise my hands to it. I still turn those to the east as I stand at the window. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence, which featured stories from our sister publication, 1843, all of which are available in our current summer double issue. The show's editors are Marguerite Howell and Chris Impey, and our sound engineer is Will Rowe, with help this week from Saul Rivers. Our senior producers are Sam Westron, Jack Gill, and John Joe Devlin. Stevie Hertz is our U.S. audio correspondent, and our creative producer is William Warren. Our producers are Rory Galloway, Alizé Jean-Baptiste, and Kevin Kaners. We'll all see you back here on Monday. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.